the church this morning? I think that's on, isn't it? Is that on? Yep. Okay, great. Ah, now I can hear it. Uh, especially if you're visiting with us this morning, a very warm and special welcome. It's great to have you with us. Um, if you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to be reading from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. I don't know about you, but what a great song we just sang um, this morning in church. I don't, I don't think I've sung that song before. But what a beautiful, beautiful message. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17, and this is God's word. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. If you'll see the inside of your bulletins, there's quite an extensive sermon outline there if you want to use that. Uh, I think you hopefully you'll find that helpful. Uh, it's been a while since we met together as a church. Um, last week we had the combined service at St John's looking um, at Reformation Sunday, which was lovely. Uh, and then the week before that we had our church camp. So it's been a while since we've looked at the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians is actually, I think, one of my favourite books in the Bible. Uh, and I think if you're ever stranded on a desert island and uh, there's only one book to take, I think it would be the Bible, 
But if there was only one book of the Bible in which you could really meditate on and reflect on and pray over, I think it would have to be the book of Ephesians because it's everything that you need to know. The first half of the book teaches us about everything that God has done for us in Christ. But the second half of the book outlines how we should live, what we should do in response to what Christ has done for us. Uh, As we've seen, the prologue of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I think, is one of the most profound summaries of the gospel to be found anywhere in the New Testament. And it really is worth committing to memory and reflecting on regularly. As we come to consider what Paul says in the second half of the book, though, we need to keep those gospel truths of the first half of the book firmly in mind because we don't want to fall into the trap of legalism, of thinking that our standing before our Heavenly Father is based upon what we do. Our standing, as we saw last week on Reformation Sunday, is firmly based upon what Christ has done. As we come to God's word today then, let's pray that the Lord Jesus himself, as he promised in John 16, um, that the Holy Spirit would bring glory to Christ by taking what is his and making it known to ourselves. Let's pray that God would give us the power to believe and obey. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. That flowing out of the gospel, we would live transformed lives. Lord, we thank you for the great joy and delight it is to be able to worship you together. And Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. For you promise that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, there are you in the midst of them. Lord, how amazing it is to think and to know that you, the true and living God, who created the universe, are eager to meet with us this morning. Indeed, even though we are sinful people, you run and you reach out to us with outstretched arms, welcoming welcoming us when we turn to you in repentance and faith. Indeed, Lord, even before we turn, you are already taking the initiative and calling us to yourself. So, Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. And we pray that you would so work in me that I would glorify your name and be a faithful witness to you. And, Father, we ask for your blessing. For we pray these things, Lord, knowing that we can't do any of these things in our souls, but we look to you to do them. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, um, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a character who is tormented by a red lizard that lives on his shoulder. It's quite a memorable scene, but the lizard is a metaphor. It represents indwelling sin uh, that we all face and it constantly mocks the young man. All of a sudden, an angel, though, comes and it offers to remove the lizard. The young man is initially thrilled, and he thinks, I can finally be rid of this thing that torments me so constantly. But but then the young man realises that the angel 
glows with what Lewis calls a deadly intent. And the way that he's going to remove the lizard is, in fact, by killing it. The young man suggests that maybe it really isn't necessary for the lizard to die and perhaps there might be another time uh, for better dealing with him. You see, he's become attached to the lizard. The angel, though, will not be put off. And with great insight, he says this. This moment contains all moments. Thankfully, the man makes the right decision. And he gives the angel permission to attack and slay the lizard. As truth aflame, he seizes the lizard with fiery hands and with great power chokes the life out of the lizard. It falls to the ground and surprisingly, it doesn't die, it changes. And the ugly red lizard turns into this beautiful stallion. The beast that has ridden on the shoulder of the young man to mock him is now mounted and ridden by the young man in victory. He who was the master is now mastered. He who was in bondage is now free. What was once ugly is now beautiful. Even though it is the same creature, it's been transformed. It's a beautiful you know, literary description, and don't read too much theologically, I think, into this. It's, it's a piece of literary art. As to what it means to really put sin to death and decide to follow Christ. Through his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus has put to death what Paul would call the old man and has brought to life the new one within us. Our sinful nature has been crucified and as a result we have now been given power by God's Holy Spirit to live in a completely new and different way. It's the difference between being enslaved by the ugly red lizard to enjoying the freedom and the exhilaration of keeping in step with the spirit, of riding what Lewis describes as the stallion. The problem is, though, friends, is that our sin is so deceitful that we can be tempted to be going back to our old way of living, can't we? to being enslaved and ensnared by the patterns of behaviour that once used to rule us. Just take a look at what the Apostle Paul has to say in verses 17 to 19, if you still have your Bibles open. I'm not going to read it all again to you, but I, I want you to notice all of the different ways that he describes the spiritual condition of the person who is outside of Christ. Verse 17, they are futile in their thinking. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from God. Then in the second half of verse 18, their hearts have been hardened. Then in verse 19, they have lost all sensitivity and given themselves over to sensuality. It's a perfect real description, isn't it, of the non-Christian life, of just handing yourself over to sin doing whatever your heart wants to do. It's a very bleak 
and desperate situation that is being described for us here, isn't it? And it's not that people are as bad as they possibly can be. There's always room to be worse. The problem is is that everything that we do has been completely corrupted and polluted by the indwelling presence of sin. As the prophet Isaiah says, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight. That's what a lizard life is like. It's one that has been completely given over to sensuality, to doing what our sinful heart and our sinful flesh and our sinful mind wants to do. I read a story during the week about an elder in a church who tragically left his wife in order to take up a relationship with a younger woman. When the pastor of the church where he was at exhorted him to not go down that particular path, the guy showed no signs of remorse, let alone repentance. Tragically, uh, we see this kind of thing happen. It was as though his heart had become completely and utterly hard. And with unblinking eyes, a lizard look, you might say, He said to his pastor, I've never felt more alive. Alive? He wasn't in love, friends, was he? He was in lust. You see, he was defining his life by how it made him feel. What it did to his physical desires. And having given himself over to what Paul would say, all sensuality he had lost his spiritual sensitivity to God. And this is the kind of temptation that we have to watch out for ourselves. Just listen to how one commentator I was reading this week put it. He says, The sin in which we indulge for a while hardens our hearts, darkens our minds to the evil of what we are doing and ultimately makes us less sensitive to and less fulfilled by the profound satisfaction God provides by his blessings in our lives. You see, it's not enough to just put lizards to death. It's only really half the solution. The other half to do is to what C.S. Lewis would call riding stallions. That is to walk in the paths of righteousness to take up our cross, to put to death the old man, but that's half of it, isn't it? And to follow Jesus. Paul describes this decision in verses 22 to 24 as putting off the old self, but also putting on the new. This is, that is, to deliberately and intentionally go about living in the way that God has revealed for us to live. And unlike giving oneself over to sensuality and the desires of the flesh, putting on the new self is what the Bible says is truly liberating, fulfilling and free. Living God's way is enriching and rewarding precisely because that's the way God created us to be. Now Paul goes on to give six very concrete examples as to what this will mean. If you take a look at your sermon outlines you'll see that I've listed them out for you. And I wonder as we go through these, which one particularly challenges you? First of all, he uh, 
First of all, we are to tell the truth to one another and to put off all falsehood. It can be hard, can't it? Because telling the truth often makes us look bad. We have to be honest about our own shortcomings and therefore we have to have the humility to be completely transparent. Honesty within the body of Christ, though, is paramount to healthy relationships being maintained. In particular, we need to have the courage to raise with each other our hurts and acknowledge where we've fallen short. And that also means putting off falsehood and speaking truthfully. You see, Paul is not just talking about not lying. The deeper issue here is to not be relationally false with one another, to act like there isn't a problem when really deep down there is. Being honest then is about being genuine, of being sincere in what we say, even when it means saying things that are difficult. You see, following on from this first point, Paul says that while there may be times when we are legitimately angry or upset about something, we are not to sin when we are. That is, we're not to lose control emotionally. We shouldn't yell and scream, we shouldn't gossip or slander, and we definitely shouldn't swear or curse. Note that being angry in and of itself is not a sin. The problem is how we act or what we do when we're angry. Did you notice what King David said in Psalm 4? It's exactly the same principle. He says, in your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your heart and be silent. Influenced by, I think, some schools of modern secular psychology, some people think that, you know, venting your emotions is cathartic and the best way to healing. You ever hear that? I think it's one of the most unhelpful pieces of advice you can give. What I've noticed is that if you just give full vent to your emotions and your thoughts and your feelings, it only leads to further hurt. Reckless words pierce like a sword, the Proverbs say. And that's the problem when you just let your anger go unchecked. It does an incredible amount of damage. Now again, I'm not saying we shouldn't give expression to how we're feeling, but we should give consideration as to how we express it. The godly way to respond is to exercise self-control. That doesn't mean saying nothing at all. And the problem with doing that is it doesn't go away when you do nothing. It actually makes it worse. You see, I think probably the worst thing that we can do when we're angry is not address it. You literally, when you do that, you give the devil a foothold in your heart and it only leads to all kinds of other problems. You know, that's the temptation, isn't it, when somebody really makes you angry, is you give them the silent treatment. You think, oh, I'm going to get back at them. 
And for the next couple of days, I just won't talk to them. But you know, friends, when we do that, we're giving the devil a foothold in our heart. Because the devil will use our unresolved anger and he'll twist it and he'll poison our attitude to that person so that everything that they do or have said will be viewed even more negatively than what it originally was. The ancient Greek engineer and mathematician Archimedes used to say, give me a lever long enough with a place to stand and I can move the world. And that same principle holds true, I think, when we give the devil a foothold in our hearts. Unresolved anger is like a lever in which our whole lives can be moved by the devil. Unresolved anger is often the way that Satan comes in and twists and makes things worse. You start to see other people, especially the person who offended you and legitimately offended you, in the worst possible light. It requires real effort, courage, but can I say most of all love to try and resolve it. To make yourself vulnerable and to expose yourself even to the possibility of further pain. When you do, though, the personal freedom and the relational reward is marvellous. But, friends, this requires humility. It's like an enormous weight, I think, can be lifted off your chest and you're truly freed to love and, and to love the other person again. It's incredible that the Apostle Paul should have to say even what he says next in verse 28. But the deceitfulness of sin is such that even as believers, we need to be reminded of God's righteous will. Paul says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. There are all kinds of different ways in which we can illegitimately take from one another, can't we? I mean, on the one hand, there's outright theft. But on the other hand, there's more subtle forms of theft that spring from a more devious and duplicitous heart. For instance, we may steal time from our employer of not fulfilling our responsibilities like we should. It's theft. Or when we can also steal support and assistance from others when we are failing to actually work and provide for ourselves. The principle is that we should be contributors rather than sponges. We should seek to be a blessing to others rather than seek to take from them for ourselves. Verse 29 is especially pertinent. And this is one of the most challenging exhortations because it shapes everything we say. In particular, it makes us stop and reflect on the effect that what we're having or saying is having on others. Verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's really difficult, isn't it? But it's a great paradigm to try and filter our speech through 
David Cook has this great little saying that he asks himself before he says something. And you've probably heard it before. It's structured under the acronym THINK. Think before you speak. I found out you can come up with it. It's probably on a Hallmark card. Nonetheless, it's really good. It says this. Is it true? Is it helpful? Does it inspire? Is it necessary? And finally, is it kind? It's a really good piece of advice, isn't it? To think before we speak. So many problems if we would just take the time to think before we speak. Following on from this, though, is verse 30 to 31. And I've mentioned the two verses together because I think that they're obviously linked. And that is, how do we grieve God's Holy Spirit? Well, it's by allowing unresolved animosity to exist in our relationships with each other. That is what grieves the Spirit of God. It's when we are unwilling to be reconciled. It grieves God's God's Spirit, friends. And when we say like Cain did, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? And the answer to that question is always yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. We are each other's keeper. That is, we want to make sure that we keep open and loving relationships with one another that keep growing and developing. Or Paul puts it the other way in verse 31. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, no destructive trait is left unmentioned, is it? Every single type of attitude or behaviour that might negatively impact or affect our relationship with one another is mentioned here. So we are left with no excuse. On the other hand, though, it's not just about being negative and weeding out bad or destructive behaviours. On the flip side of our responsibility is verse 32. And wisely, Paul gives us this positive command. So on the one hand, not to do, we are not to do what is outlined in verse 31, but on the other hand, we are to try and put into practice what is outlined in verse 32. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, this last command really sums up everything that Paul has been saying. That is, we are to forgive just as we've been forgiven. I read, or reread actually, a great story about a couple of missionaries in Pakistan, Graham and Gladys Staines. They were missionaries who worked among lepers in eastern India for over 34 years. On January 23, 1999, Graham and their two sons, Timothy and Philip, aged 10 and 8, were burnt to death in their car by a group of militant Hindus. It was an absolutely horrific crime and it captured worldwide attention. 
in my congregation that I used to serve on the mainland, there were a couple of people that used to actually go to school with the, 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 the Staines' children. Just listen, though, to how Gladys responded, his wife, to the terrible murder of her husband and her two young sons. She said, when I learned that my family was dead, I told my daughter, we'll forgive them then, won't we? And she said, yes, mummy, we will. How was I able to forgive, she says. The truth is that I myself am a sinner. I needed Jesus Christ to forgive me. Because I have Jesus in my life, it is possible for me to forgive others. And then she went on to explain, forgiveness brings healing. It allows the other person a chance to start life afresh. If I have something against you and I forgive you, the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. Now that's such an amazing example and model of what forgiveness looks like, isn't it? I mean, if Gladys Staines and her daughter could forgive the people who murdered her family in cold blood, people who had devoted their lives to helping people, if they could forgive them, then surely we can forgive each other. More to the point, though, we can forgive because we ourselves have been forgiven everything. Yes? We can overlook pain and hurt as real and as legitimate as it can and is. We can let go because that's how God has related to us. I read that sometime after the murders, Gladys Staines wrote that someone approached their daughter at the school and they said, I can't understand how you can forgive them. And you know what her daughter said back to her? Mummy, I can't understand how they can't understand why we have forgiven. That's the kind of radical grace and generosity which should characterise all of our relationships because of the gospel as well. Because, or since we've all been forgiven, all of our sins, we should, we must extend the same forgiveness to each other. I want to close this morning with a word of exhortation as well as a warning. And that is to beware of... The quote-unquote, almost innocent. You see, just before the lizard in Lewis's story is put to death, he tries to convince the man that it's a bad idea and he pleads with him to not put it to death. And this is what he says. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. This is what the lizard says to the man. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Almost innocent. It's that subtle but oh, so insidious form of temptation that we really have to watch out for, isn't it? Of flirting with sin around the areas or the edges, but not put it to death. To keep it relatively close, 
rather than to flee in the other direction. To indulge in anger, you know, or slander or gossip rather than to shut up, be silent. Friends, let's be zealous in hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Let's not let sin master us, but let's pursue God in all holiness and purity. Let's walk in the way Christ desires for us, because that's what we've been saved for, for that purpose. It's what the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in us to do. Unfortunately, this side of heaven, none of us can be perfect, but that doesn't change our right standing before God. Chapters 1 to 3, remember, come before chapters 4 to 6. Instead, it's precisely because we've been justified by God's grace that we can have the confidence to put into practice what we've heard from God's word today. So let's not make excuses for our sin, even when it seems almost innocent. Let's ruthlessly put to death the lizards of our sin so that we can ride the stallions of our righteousness. And let's do it all to the glory and the honour and the praise of Christ's name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us through your word this morning. Uh, Lord, we want to praise you and thank you that you are the true and living God. You are holiness itself. As the angels and the four living creatures that stand before you are singing in heaven right now, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who lives and reigns. Lord, as we reflect on your, and as we see your perfect righteousness, we are only all too aware that we sin against you. We fall short. So first of all, Lord, we want to pray for forgiveness and cleansing. But second of all, Lord, we want to pray for your Holy Spirit's renewing to put into practice what your word says. Lord, strengthen us that we will put to death those things in our lives that are not pleasing to you and that we might know the freedom, the joy and the power of your spirit at work in our lives. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper together.